0: But I'd say, you know, in in a lot of cases, Indigenous, non-Indigenous peoples, when we get together, we have about 90% in common. And then, but there's 10% there, which is what, you know, what we're here to talk about, is reconciliation, this kind of common understanding, this common language that needs to be uh, between our groups to create that empathy, right?
1: listening to Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast dedicated to breaking down barriers, undermining stereotypes and fighting racism. I'm Jessica Vandenberg and my co-host is George Lee.
2: So our guest today is Stephen Vevada who talks about his work with Indigenous communities through his company, Scout Engineering and Consulting Limited, his personal connection to his business and his approach to working with Indigenous communities, what it means to really care about your clients, collaborative wisdom, technological stewardship, understanding and sharing knowledge. We talk about the C2C2C Unity Corridor and what that could mean for Canada what good infrastructure can mean for a community and its people, especially its children, counteracting stereotypes, parents as role models and mentors, training and breaking through the myth that there's a simple technical solution to every problem, and quite a few other things. But before all that, here's Jessica with a land acknowledgement.
1: Currently, I'm situated on the traditional territory of Treaty 6, and we stand upon a land that carries the footsteps of and hearts of many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people that have been here for thousands of years and many generations. And I'd like to acknowledge our and their relationships with Mother Earth. It is an interconnected relationship, as we're all relations, and have an obligation to respect that this land has nourished and healed, protected and embraced us. And we are grateful to the Indigenous peoples that have been stewards of this interconnected relationship. We are all relations, and as such, we all respect each other in our beliefs, but also our own individual relationships with Mother Earth. And so for my heart and spirit to yours and all those who are listening, I'd like to open up this podcast in a good way. Steve is definitely a very passionate person, and, and I'm glad that we finally I've been able to partner on a few things more solidly because I know we've been crossing paths for many years. I'm very excited that he's on here as a guest. Stephen is the President of Scout Engineering and Consulting Limited, his Indigenous owned and operated company based in Standoff, Alberta on the Kainai First Nation. Steve established Scout in 2017 to work holistically and collaboratively with Indigenous communities and their government and corporate partners. He's also experienced in the government side of the equation, having been responsible for the delivery of infrastructure projects across Treaty 6 and Treaty 7 as a senior engineer with Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, now called Indigenous Services Canada. Before that, Stephen was with Amec Foster Wheeler, most recently as National Indigenous Business Lead, and he's also been a project manager and project engineer with Dillon Consulting Limited. And he's had a few other gigs since graduating from the University of Calgary Schulich School of Engineering with a Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering. He also studied Environmental Engineering Technology and Environmental Technology at Schulich School of Engineering. The projects that Stephen has been involved in conjure up somewhat of a roadmap of Alberta's First Nations and other communities, from Frog Lake to Masquichee to Siksika to Karstland to Salt River, and to a little town called Calgary. You've definitely been a few places, Stephen. And through it all, you've been developing your philosophy of the power of infrastructure and respectful and effective collaboration to transform Indigenous communities. So, welcome, Stephen.
0: That was wonderful, and uh, yeah, it's always interesting to hear somebody read back your 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 work and what you where you've been.
1: You've definitely um, had a varied path, and I know that's how you and I have met that we've crossed paths uh, in the engineering world at indigenous conferences. Um, And we've lately we've been partnering uh, to help with some of the indigenous communities with some of the consulting work that we've been doing together. Is there anything that you want to add to the bio that we missed anything else you want our listeners to to know about you?
0: Well, you know, I think you guys, maybe I'll, I'll let you in on a a little secret was um, you know, this isn't the first company I ever started. I actually ran a bit of a, a, a wedding DJ business for a while, and uh, and that was that was a lot of fun. I had a, I had a really good time and uh, ended up getting into a bit of event promotion with my friends. Um, you know, it was more of an avant-garde arts focused uh, take on what, you know, a music event party might be. But yeah, it certainly informed my approach to uh, starting businesses and, and being a little bit uh, more artistic than your average engineer.
1: That's kind of funny because last night I actually was watching The Wedding Singer. <laughs> so when he said that, what pops up in my head is is Adam Sandler in The Wedding Singer.
0: <laughs> I had my moments for sure, yeah.
1: <laughs> and so um, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about your journey growing up because um, we understand that you grew up with one parent that was Indigenous and one that was non-Indigenous and and maybe chat a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So I'm very grateful for my parents. My mom is from the Blood Reserve, so down south by Fort McLeod. That's where she grew up, was uh, in Fort McLeod. She was uh, the youngest in the family of quite a big family. And we had tons of aunts, uncles, cousins uh, around us all the time growing up. But my mom didn't really have too many opportunities and she could see that uh, by staying around there she was the youngest and had to kind of make her own way. And so she moved to Edmonton shortly after graduating and met my dad. He was an engineer at uh, Indigenous Services, which was, you know, at the time, if you go way back, it was Aboriginal Affairs in Northern Development Canada. And he was an engineer there and uh, he uh, was in that job for forever. But uh, they lived in Edmonton uh, until I was 15. And then we moved to High River and then eventually I ended up in Calgary. And I've been in Calgary for the past 20 years, but my, uh, you know, my parents and my upbringing are are quite a gift. Um, you know, my mom going out and uh, seeking opportunity, you know, she's such a strong person. She's been a huge influence. I, I want to honor her because she is somebody that I consider a huge role model and somebody who is fearless and has always been fearless and has really given me that sense of fearlessness, I would say. And then my dad was always the engineer at indigenous services that uh, was invited to sit on the the First Nations side of the table. He would, he'd have such a good relationship and he'd have, have done so many good works over his time there that he was considered to be part of the nation's team. He, he would He would help them guide them and give them some great advice on uh, the issues that they were confronting and and I benefit greatly from his his good name he's a great example of somebody who uh, with what you can uh, do in this world do good deeds and uh, he's always been somebody I consider as you know a great role model of a parent of of an engineer and somebody to try to be more like so you know that's those are my role models. And, and because of that, I'm eternally grateful. Out of that, I ended up going to university, like you alluded to, at the U of C, where for me, I don't know about, uh, about you, Jessica, you probably had a, a better go of it than me. But you know, I, I had a bit of a roller coaster there. I survived it. Uh, it took me a few extra years, then uh, maybe you know, it was on the schedule. But you know, that's a a big learning too. And that, that was another uh, massive piece to uh, who I am today, where persistence, you know, having other pursuits along the way and being engaged and present uh, led to, you know, some great relationships. I met my wife. We, um, you know, enjoyed our time here in Calgary ever since that moment. And it's been such a positive influence. I've really made my home here. And, and, you know, I go down south quite often, obviously my business is is situated on the blood reserve, but we do a lot of work here in Calgary and all points north. So it's been a journey. It's kind of fun to look back on it and, and imagine, you know, how you get here and, and you could never imagine where you're going to end up. And it's very exciting. So
2: it sounds to me when you say that, that this really, this focus of scout engineering and consulting,
0: uh, really represents who you are. I would say so. I think it's uh, a combination of so many influences. Starting a business without having a parent who is an entrepreneur takes that fearlessness, takes that drive and that determination to uh, do the work that you ha- you wouldn't have been able to do in other circumstances. So that uh, experience of being around my parents and and their um, influence on me definitely is formative, and and then yeah, there's been some great you know other mentors along the way. I was involved in a group uh, that is now called the Human Venture Institute. Uh, used to be Leadership Calgary. Their perspective, their unique take on how we solve our problems today. Uh, it's a very personal business. It's definitely uh, I would say something that is an extension of who I am, and uh, I can. Uh, be very proud of that but it's also uh, a bit nerve-wracking sometimes when the business doesn't land we we try to do good and clients and and the nations that we work with have so many issues they're dealing with you know we're just one of many people in there trying to do positive things and so it's uh, always a challenge to separate yourself out from the business when it is such a uh, an extension of yourself and kind of a realization of your 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 life's purpose almost, I would say.
1: I found that as well, especially when I worked as a, a consultant um, for, for another firm for a while, that working with the communities was extra meaningful to me because it was personal, but the stress of it was also larger because it is personal. And the relationships that you have with the people in the communities um, are deep and they're personal and the stories that they share with you are hard to hear um, of the injustices and the things that just aren't fair and the amount of bureaucracy as you know especially having worked for ISC in the past and and seeing some of these things and have been helping your clients uh, work through um, all the red tape that has to go to just to get funding and to be heard and to be listened and to have a seat at certain tables and things like that.
2: You're listening to Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm George Lee. My co-host is Jessica Vandenberg, and our guest is Stephen Vivada. This idea of
1: community, this idea of um collaboration and respectful holistic approach Um, you're trying to build into every aspect of your company maybe you want to chat with us a little bit about about your approach
0: yeah thanks and and again that's informed by all these different mentors and leaders and I'm I'm not just talking about you know my parents I'm talking about the engineers that have trained me up and shown me what a practicing engineer looks like acts like how they conduct themselves and and to have a high standard and so bringing that to that idea of community being so rigorous about it has been really helpful because it's helped me to distill what we do and it's not just a personal thing like I could say it's all about me and I'm the straw that stirs the drink but I don't think that's really helpful I'd like to it down on paper and that was always a goal was to say you know what is it that I bring in my perspective uh, and how can we put that down articulate that and hopefully have other people bring that to their work because I think it's it's not that I have some genius expertise on this subject or I'm especially smart or gifted it's just I really care and I love my clients I deeply love them I've told them that. like It's like uh, working with my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my elders. I love it. This last week, for instance, I had a, an elder share a story about our Blackfoot history. And it was extremely moving and a real highlight for my career to be in a situation where I'm an expert and being given the opportunity to learn from our community experts, our elders, our knowledge keepers, in a manner that helps to move our entire engineering profession forward. You know, if I can bring that experience to people who are Indigenous, non-Indigenous, I think that's what's going to, that's what's going to change the world. It's not me, but it's going to be the people I work with and the people that I bring into the company who bring their talents and their passion to it. And if I can give them that kind of experience, uh, I think that's what's gonna create amazing innovations and amazing moments for people that they'll carry with them for the rest of their lives and you know how do we do that right and you you want to put it down on paper but it's so difficult so you almost have to create a few kind of new terms and and so we have these kind of three guiding principles to scout engineering and how we do our business first principle is what i call technological stewardship And that's, how do we use technology to make the world a better place? And specifically, how do we do that for Indigenous peoples? Because they're not testing the Google self-driving car on reserve roads. So how is this technology going to benefit our people if, you know, we can't use these technologies in our own communities? Internet connectivity is so poor in communities that it's almost impossible to deliver online curriculum. Or to, you know, have done this kind of distance learning uh, during this pandemic. It's it's been really unfortunate to know that that's a challenge that's been out there. And and our communities, again, taking it very personally, our communities are not receiving the same benefit of the technology that we have available to us. And so, that's our first principle: is technological stewardship. And the the second principle is a term I call trust consulting. And that's how do we create empathetic engagements between people who may not believe they have much in common but we're human and we have a lot of the same desires and needs we want a better future for our children we want to feel secure we we have our our needs maslow's hierarchy right we need our shelter we need our food we we have a lot in common so i'd say you know in in a lot of cases indigenous non-indigenous peoples when we get together we have about 90 percent in common And there, but there's 10% there, which is what, you know, what we're here to talk about, this reconciliation, this kind of common understanding, this common language that needs to be uh, between our groups to create that empathy, right? As as a person with Indigenous parents and non-Indigenous parents, I don't get to pick sides. And that's been really beneficial, but it's also put me in, in spots where I get beaten up with both sticks, right? Where I'm, uh, I'm, considered to be maybe not as Indigenous as other people if there's a measuring stick out there that people are using but I'm also on that Indigenous side of the equation when I'm working with the non-Indigenous business community. It's helped me greatly and I believe you know uh, uh, an unused knife dulls quickly and so I get to work on both sides of this and it's, it's provided this opportunity that um, has been hugely beneficial, and and I think that's an, an opportunity that everybody could have if we go through this process of trust, consulting, this empathy, and engaging with each other in this kind of understanding manner. And so, the last guiding principle of the company is the most powerful. It's actually the origin of the whole company, and of everything I'm doing is the idea of collaborative wisdom. It's how do we learn from indigenous communities in the business world and in our engineering uh, practice because i believe that that's the future of our country is when we have this exchange of knowledge of wisdom and our indigenous communities learn from the non-indigenous communities the things that the things that would be helpful to them right you know how do we use engineering and business acumen to maintain our traditional ways of life we're underrepresented in so many fields and so many professions you know we have to fix that we have to learn from each other and i think that's something that could set canada ahead for you know our next hundred years is if we get that right if we have that exchange of knowledge and wisdom between the two groups and 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 you know this could apply to any diverse group uh, if we try to learn from each other really i think the principles i'm talking about are all very human ideas but again the most powerful one is this idea we can learn from each other if we would come together and collaborate with this kind of idea of collaborative wisdom
2: that sounds a lot like uh the need for uh diversity on corporate boards diversity in organizations diversity in professions diversity in technical skills everywhere that seems to be a really important thing that that brings better decisions because of the amount the perspectives that are represented
1: to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast that compiles stories from settler and Indigenous people as we move forward in the calls to action for Canada. I'm Jessica Vandenberg, and my co-host is George Lee.
2: You can be a better community. If you, if you have the support of better physical things in your life. We've got a situation where a lot of the reserves don't even have good internet connectivity, and that's considered basic infrastructure in, in most of our lives.
0: Again, because I take the work so personally, I think over time, spending time on the reserve, spending time in the city building infrastructure all over the place, I really got to get a feel for the disparity in the infrastructure in our First Nations communities and Indigenous communities generally. You know, Metis communities have a lot of the same issues. I imagine that the Inuit communities up north are um, in a lot of the same, in having a lot of the same challenges. But I think one perspective that we don't think about when we think about roads, water, uh, the buildings, is the psychological effect that it has on the people when it's so stark going from one side of the line to the other, which is this reserve boundary. You know, the origin of the reserves and, and how they came to be they, what, the way they are is, is kind of a an unknown story. You know, the infrastructure was built out not to provide the same level of service and quality of life as the neighboring communities, but kind of just a more of a, a means of addressing kind of the basic issues Uh, facing the communities, kind of lack of access to uh, hospitals and and original roads in those communities were built uh, as wagon trails. And so over time, they've degraded because they were never imagined to carry heavy traffic or uh, the traffic associated with economic development and and, uh, manufacturing or oil and gas. It's created this situation where you will come onto a reserve and you'll know that you're on the reserve. You're going to, you're going to feel it because your you know, your car is going to get beat up the moment you hit the the reserve road. Um, You know, one very stark example I had in, in a community, I was doing a road repair project and I was driving around and, and I, I got off the reserve and I was driving on the, the municipality roads next to the community. And I turned around, I looked back and it was like a scene out of a Disney, princess movie where it's like you're staring down a a black forest because the trees hadn't been cut back the ditches hadn't been cut you know there's standing water in the ditches and the road looks again like a, a rutted out wagon trail you know it just it couldn't have been more stark the difference and and that where that line is crossed i believe that it has an impact on the people mentally and physically right where there's poor drinking water there's dust in the air from the roads buildings have maybe been neglected, so the heating and air conditioning is, is intermittent. There's mold issues in a lot of communities. How can that not impact a child who grows up looking out their window thinking, well, this is what I deserve, right? That's, that's, a lot of, that's been a lot of our own story is this kind of take charge of yourself, be in charge of yourself, you're a self-made person, You know, I don't believe that personally I've been very fortunate again with my parents and my upbringing, a lot of advantages I've had, or I've just been very, very fortunate that kind of story of it's all on you. And then looking out and seeing well, these are the things that you deserve right these poor roads this bad water. Uh, I think it has a mental impact on our youth and our communities, and so I really see it as not just provision of clean water and having safe roads to drive on where you don't have to worry about ending up in the ditch when it rains because the road turns into a pool table, you know where you're sliding all over the place. I think it actually has a a, a mental, it creates this mental barrier, a mental block in our people where we, we oftentimes don't think we deserve nice things. And so I think that's that kind of thought doesn't occur to many engineers. But I hope it does eventually get there where we see that connection, right? That ability to change minds, to change lives with our work beyond just providing that clean drinking water, which should be a right and should be there. But we can actually have people have a more positive self-perception about that.
1: So definitely it's on the mind of of me as an engineer as well. (laughs) And I think that's why we align a lot of our values at this idea the idea, like the seven sacred teachings, I think about them a lot, right? And that these can be tied into engineering and engineering approach. And I think it's important to mention as well, like I know you painted a, a picture of what the reserves look like and, and for many there's a reality there, um, but we also need to paint the picture a little of what you said in the beginning too, that there are good people and that there are good stories as well. There's values that just inspire the people, Indigenous people, to keep going. Like there's still a belief in family. There's one of the best things I always loved about going to the reserves is that people gather around food and they gather around ceremony. And there's still so much laughter, like just out loud, big belly laughter, right? And and the love of dancing and things like that. So one of the things I know we want to do with this podcast is also dispel some of the the stereotypes that are out there. Do you want to talk about some of the myths and stereotypes perhaps that um, you'd like to share some stories about to counter?
0: The stereotypes are many and they're deep and, and some of them are very deep and hurtful. You know, the, the idea that indigenous peoples uh, are, are lazy. I mean, Lord, uh, my mom i mean she went pretty far away from her home she moved to edmonton she cut herself off from her family to have a better life for her kids and you know that caused so much of a, a burden on her i honor her by striving, by trying as hard as i can by not giving up and that's what's possible that's you know they the 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 idea that indigenous people are lazy is that's like saying white people are greedy i don't i don't I don't believe in stereotypes. I don't believe in in these kind of preconceived notions about people. You have to embrace the the luck, the circumstance, the context, the all the nuance that people have. No one imagines that they're a villain in their own story. Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. You know, I think some of those stereotypes are almost there to make people feel better about not caring. Or they think it makes their lives easier. When I think it in the end, if you're ever confronted on your preconceived notion stereotypes or your your the way that you think of the world, it can be very it can be very disruptive. It can throw people into all kinds of chaos. You can either recoil and go back to your stereotypes and kind of brush stuff off as fake news or, you know, but it can also lead to like a, a big kind of spiraling where you just don't know you don't know what's real anymore. I think these stereotypes are extremely harmful. The lazy stereotype just holds no water at all once you kind of look at um the the heights that indigenous people can achieve in in business and science. You know, Jessica, you're a great example and somebody I admire in terms of your accomplishments as an engineer. You know, you could look at me and say, "Well, uh, you know, is that uh which side of you is this that gives you this advantage like these stereotypes are so pervasive people say well he's only doing it because he's got a non-indigenous parent or he's only got doing this indigenous work because he has an indigenous parent and it just it tears everybody down and the stereotype of yeah of white people being greedy let's let's look at that because i think the reverse racism from indigenous peoples to look at white people as a monolith is is also very hurtful you know, my wife is not Indigenous. My kids are, are, they don't have a extremely dark complexion. And they're the Indigenous kids in the class. You know, why, why do we put this label on when it just serves to kind of put yourself in a prison? You know, saying white people are greedy is almost like saying, I can't, I can't achieve something because I'm not white. Or like, I can't be successful. Or it can just be used in so many really self-destructive ways. I just, I just find it very limiting. I really, you know, discourage that idea of making life easy. Like, I, I, if, you're, if you're artificially making life easy for yourself by putting people in boxes, by um, explaining away, you know, how somebody ends up on the street or how somebody ends up being successful by their race or by their gender or by their sexual orientation, you're making your life easy. When it and when we need to take on more responsibility, and we need to, in a way, challenge ourselves and make it a little harder, um, because when you are confronted with something that challenges that stereotype, you're not equipped to understand it and to interpret it properly. Which is that circumstance, con- context, luck, your upbringing, the opportunities you have in front of you. I, I think it cuts us. It cuts us so. Deep both ways when we use these stereotypes. So, I think you can pull out any stereotype out of the out of the bin and and look at it and say, you know, it's it's a thing which when you carry it, it's 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 dragging you down.
1: You're listening to Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, a podcast of ideas, solutions, and respectful conversations. I'm Jessica Vanenburg, and my co-host is George Lee.
2: And I think there's that comfort level you talked about, is that it allows people to just put something in a box that they don't have to worry about. Like, okay, this is what I believe, therefore my way is is better and i i'm right and i can go through through living my life and then they have to have the exceptions so then then they meet an indigenous person who ha- who happens to work with them or they're they're in the they're in any kind of a, a chance relationship and then they have to start making these exceptions they go well except for that one uh the more we break down that barrier of, of stereotyping the better it is for everyone and it stops us from thinking that there's one solution to everything, too. Things aren't monolithic. And, and accepting other viewpoints and other people for them having intrinsic worth as human beings, regardless of what their cultures and upbringings are, that's what I want to see in Canada. Probably someday after I'm no longer here, <laughs> there will be something maybe approaching that.
0: Well, I think that people are coming at it from a lot of different angles and they, uh, they all have their own story as part of that. So then they end up, they end up coming at it from a lot of really personal places. So you have uh, people that uh, come at it from their lived experience and they, they have an event that really triggers their want to learn. And that, you know, I think there's also an awareness that's increasing about it, which is leading to more of those experiences, right. Where, you know, the stories of um, the lady uh, in Quebec who passed away in the hospital, right. That, that strikes a lot of people very personally. Yeah. Cause she was a mother and she uh, had, you know, she just went into a hospital and then she, she passes away. Right. So it's, based a lot i think on that brushing up against it and people's lived experience so yes it yeah. uh, it's not it's not something you confront in everyday life it has to sort of be put in front of you before people will engage with it almost
2: is it okay if we jump to uh some of the uh awareness training roles that you've had
0: yeah so we as a company will do uh awareness training for specifically for engineers and technical roles, people who are working with communities um, that maybe don't have that background. Part of it is trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're training, who've never been on a reserve and don't, don't have uh, maybe a, a person in their life that is Indigenous and openly Indigenous, or they've maybe never uh, been to a cultural event like a powwow or to a feast or to a sweat. And so we're trying to be sensitive and meet people where they are, And so the myths, I think, are are primarily based around the stories that we tell ourselves. And so we go into these situations where um, uh, these are technical professionals, people who are trained to look for technical solutions because they've uh, been put through uh, the, the traditional engineering world, they've worked for clients who are not Indigenous, they're maybe working for a government entity, private corporation, or You know, a local municipality, um, you know, not everybody has a chance to work with Indigenous communities. You're kind of uh, confronting a lot of different myths and stories that people use. For example, you know, the idea that you can solve a lot of problems with technology. One of the issues that communities face is this idea of clean drinking water. And we have to work with our trainees and the people who are going through our program to understand where does that come from? Why is clean drinking water an issue and why uh, simple solutions don't work uh, when you uh, say, you know, a community doesn't have clean drinking water. First thought is to jump to the water treatment plant or the source water. You know, are you pulling it out of a dirty creek or a, a pond uh, where there's poor water quality to begin with? Um, is the plant operating efficiently? Is is the operator trained and given the tools they need? Uh, that's, that's I think, where most engineers would jump to right away but we have to work with people to have them understand that there's so many other systems at play the the way that uh, the housing is built is is sometimes so poor in some communities they're building their um, homes out of plywood and insulation so you can't run water into those homes or uh, the homes have uh, such poor uh, interior conditions or such poor uh, moisture kind of reduction, you know, dehumidification because there's eight or nine people in a home, where um, you know having the running water just deteriorates the home so quickly because it's overcrowded and the ventilation can be very poor. So you you could be making things worse in some cases, but you know everybody should have running water. Everybody should have you know safe housing, but that does not come into the mind of a lot of professionals they you know they're used to solving things in a certain way and it requires that we uh, bring people to this place where they come to understand that their solution their technical solution is going to be hindered by these other systems that come into play so as a professional engineer they are going to have to or, or, or a technical professional whatever they might be doing they're going to have to bring in this awareness of these other systems that play to deliver a functioning solution and so the the myth of problems being able to be solved by technology when in reality most of the problems confronting indigenous communities are people problems their systems problems the way the federal government delivers infrastructure to first nations is problematic you know that's what we're trying to provide people is that awareness of kind of their bias or the way they've been trained but also The the place where their indigenous clients or the people that they're working with on a major project that are in an indigenous community, where are they coming from? Because there's a kind of a a myth that the other person on the other side of the negotiating table or the other side of the boardroom is speaking the same language just because you're in the same vicinity. So, you know, we try to help people understand that uh, just because you're speaking English or you're working on the same problem or you're staring at a drawing. It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to everybody in the room. You know, the 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 idea of creating a new water treatment plant, and you wonder why the community might not be so excited. Well, you know, they know that uh, their piping and the distribution is in such poor condition that it's really not going to help them too much. So, the really joyous, momentous occasion of opening the new water treatment plant kind of falls flat for them because they know they've got half a half a dozen other issues to fix too. So. There's a lot of myths. There's a lot of stuff that people are doing that's great around cultural awareness, but our focus is on that, bridging that technical with this systems idea and and that understanding of these communities, right?
1: So much of it that ties all together too, because I know, because I agree with you having worked in the infrastructure world for a little while too, general public don't always understand what infrastructure is. Uh, People don't sit around thinking, oh, what's underneath the ground? Oh, there's um, electricity lines and telecommunication lines and um, they don't think about where their wastewater goes or how they get their drinking water. They, they just take for granted that it's at their house and that they can run their computers and, and do online learning and all these things. And then you have also combined with that that engineering is also an invisible profession. A lot of people don't really know what engineering is and then you layer on top of that the difficulty um, that Indigenous communities come because There's a number of different systems that you have to navigate that a community like a municipality or county um, wouldn't have to navigate. How the funding's done, as you mentioned, um, but also how decisions are made, as well as the, the, the politics work differently. There's a lot run by families. There's a lot of decision making that's done in a consensus collaborative way rather than the ways that the government of Alberta chooses to run their government systems, um, and jurisdiction always comes up for First Nations as well. Do we work with the federal government? Do we work with the provincial government? Or do we create our own governance and our own legislation and our own constitution? And how do we go do that? And and so then need gets sidetracked by all these conversations around, well, whose problem is it? Whose decision is making it? Who's paying for it? And that's the whole conversation that like um, that went that happened for Jordan when Jordan's principal came about I mean that little boy um, died because all these conversations were going on while he was waiting for proper medical care and that's not right and it's the same with infrastructure problems while uh, governments and lawyers and everybody argues around who's paying for what and whose jurisdiction and did we involve the right people and all that in the meantime infrastructure is deteriorating and people aren't getting their drinking water just as one of many examples and it's and it's a shame and what i like is that your company understands and walks in both worlds same with me uh the things that we've partnered on uh, we've walked in similar worlds we know how to navigate this space and the one project that we've partnered on lately is the c2c to c unity corridor because we are excited. I know I'm excited that this project is approaching Indigenous collaboration um, differently than it has in the past. And so maybe you want to chat a little bit about that.
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah, and you know I think it, it's been such a wonderful group to get involved with the leadership team that's trying to build this grassroots coalition across the country and every province in uh, Indigenous communities. And you know, and I think. In a group that is maybe kind of lost in a lot of the shuffle, the urban indigenous community, you know, of which you and I and and some other people are are in there. What the C to C to C Unity Corridor Foundation is, it's a group of people who believe that our country is capable of great things fundamentally, and the way that that plays out is that we can work indigenous communities. Uh, the non-Indigenous community, the business community, the government, and the environmental um, advocates. We can all work together to build our 21st century future as a country. And and that looks like the the very unsexy term for it is a a multimodal utility corridor, right? What is that? it's a it's a width of land you know it could be as wide as 10 kilometers as narrow as one kilometer um, but it carries the uh, digital infrastructure the power transmission infrastructure the transportation trade rail all of the new infrastructure you know drone flight paths and who knows what else we're going to have self flying you know self-driving flying cars whatever we're going to have in the next century, but. You know, how do we bring that into the, the middle third of our country, right? That kind of the northern borders of our provinces. And and how, how would we do that given our current political, uh, environmental, like all these converging uh, issues and wicked problems that we've got? How could you ever get something like this off the ground? And that's what's really remarkable about this. And I think the secret sauce, what's going to get us there is is the empathy and the care of the people involved, where they've engaged me to help them to collaboratively engage with indigenous communities. And uh, I'm extremely proud to, to serve with them. And you know, we're, we're we're working on some really exciting stuff around trying to build up. Uh, the capacities of the people who are going to have the 20 and 30 year careers to build out this corridor. We don't have lines on a map yet. I think that's, that's maybe something that was the way that things were done in the past, where we would, we would have done the engineering, we'd have laid out the lines on the map. And then we would have gone to the Indigenous communities and said, hey, we want to build this, you know, what do you think? And, And those days are gone. Uh, I'm sorry to say, I don't think that's ever going to be uh, something that's going to work when we're talking about these sort of national projects. That was something that we've seen with you know, pipelines, with other developments. You know, Hydro projects have, have come under fire recently. Um, there's, there's just so many different large projects that have this oversized impact on Indigenous communities because we're talking about these kind of remote hinterland areas. And that's where we live. That's where our Indigenous peoples are. We've said that we need to build this grassroots coalition of businesses of, and non-governmental organizations of individuals like you, Jessica, like me, anyone who sees this positive vision of Canada and believes in that, and that we are capable of great things, that we can stand tall on the world stage and do something which is beyond our current um, ambitions. Beyond what anyone would say is possible, that we're still capable of that as a country, and so uh, that's what the C2C Unity Corridor is all about. It's, uh, if you believe in that, then you know I encourage you to look us up and sign up to be a part of our newsletters, our informational sessions. You know we're going to have a series of webinars uh, coming out soon where we bring in experts on various topics of national security, of energy. You know what this might look like, and uh, it's very exciting. It's a lifetime project, I can see. It won't ever be complete until maybe I'm 80. And and that's an amazing thing to say, right? That's, I think, this collaborative wisdom in business and engineering. We can learn from the Indigenous perspective to say, we need to do the things today which are, you know, our future descendants will be proud of and to have that mindset of the future. And so, you know, I believe in it. I'm fully embracing this idea and and I think you know it's gonna be something that you hear more and more about Uh, the government's talking about it in different terms you know these utility corridors you know I know our approach being from the grassroots being built from the people and keeping indigenous communities front and center and all of that um, I think that's the the way to do it.
2: Listening to Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm George Lee. My co-host is Jessica Vandenberg, and our guest is Stephen Vivada.
0: Yeah. So uh, I'm the uh, Indigenous Collaboration Lead. I'm also um, a director in the organization which, you know, is part of the leadership team, right? So, you know, I work with um, the various teams and the communications groups and the kind of fundraising groups. I'm sort of spread out across a lot of different engagements there across the organization. Um, And so we're always having these kind of uh, strategic sessions where we're looking at, you know, what's most important, right? Bringing people on board and finding that um, blind spot we might have. And it's very exciting. We're, We're bringing on, some fantastic uh, indigenous ladies. One lady's name is Delilah Ma. Um, you know, she's a very dynamic person that that I've I've enjoyed being a part of her events that she's organized in the past around indigenous business and and, and that type of thing. And so she's helping us with our uh, our event organizing, and so she's she's wonderful. So I'm also trying to find the talent to come into our organization to address these these needs that we have. Uh, but then on the Indigenous collaboration side it's really uh, the vision of you know we have this want and desire to bring Indigenous communities into our organization but how do we do that right you know how do we how do we keep that in mind uh, when we're talking about it the way we're trying to be respectful um, trying not to you know make this a consultation and engagement exercise it's not there's a we're a long way from ever having lines on a page we need to have the conversations, have the deep discussions where we understand each other, you know, it's that trust consulting where we've got to, we got to create these empathetic engagements. And so that, you know, the, again, it's bringing these new concepts into the group, having them, uh, you know, kind of uh, bloom in their own way where, you know, now part of what we're trying to do is to develop. Um, these capacity development programs where community leaders can come in and learn what this corridor looks like, what might go in there. To Jessica's point, what is infrastructure? Where does it go? How do you put it in? Some of this stuff is quite overwhelming. Like, even I have a hard time conceiving of how we're going to build this all out and what's the sequence and what comes first and where does it go. You know, we have to build up the, the leaders in the communities. And we also have to, uh, again, create the talent pool from those indigenous communities that's going to go out and and monitor the impact on wildlife that's gonna have the community planning. As you know, we have this climate refugee crisis, where are those folks gonna go, right? You know, we're building out the frontiers of the country again, and it should be led by those communities. And to do that, we need to train up their youth, train up their uh, people to take on the leadership roles and to guide us as we go into their territory, because we are blind. And we need their eyes and we need their wisdom. Otherwise, you know, our solutions and our engineering principles are going to fall on their face.
2: That um, really uh, brought home what what the difference between past approaches has been and what future approaches or, or current approaches can be to actually working in partnership with the many communities and nations that make up Canada. I think that's just brilliant. It seems to be a step away from when you said uh, the way you put it, before we even put lines on a page, this collaboration begins. And it's not just foisting something on a community in a paternalistic way, frankly, that says, this is what we've decided for everybody. It's in your own best interest. But now we're going to talk to you a little bit about it and see what you think. And then it becomes this whole situation that I've seen played out in all kinds of communities through my career. Is here it is, what do you think? And the idea being, we've invested so much in this, you know, we're only going to tweak it at this point anyway, but let's hear what you have to say. People see through that, <laughs> interestingly enough. <laughs> and it seems like this is something more um, well, to use your word, it's a holistic approach to the whole idea of developing the nation in a or 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 moving forward as
0: an as a nation. I'm glad you brought that up because. think one of the ways that that older approach ended up playing out was there's a lot of wasted effort Uh, there's a lot of frustration you know I've met people who worked on a lot of these projects who you know they wear the battle scars (laughs) it's you know the 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 lines on their face you know it almost comes out of their pores the passion they had for those projects and then uh, you know they never they never landed right pipelines railways whatever it might have been that people really sunk their lives into and put years and blood and sweat and tears into it. To me, that's a waste. That's uh, one of the worst things we can do in our work as to create this waste and lost opportunities, right? You know, the the Indigenous communities are confronting so many issues. Even a project of this scale barely registers when there's the challenge of housing, again, clean drinking water and infrastructure, economic development opportunity, that internet connectivity, educational outcomes. I mean, the terrible tragedies around youth suicide and addictions, something like this, as amazing as it sounds, and rightfully so barely registers in those communities, you know, and this is not a blanket statement about every community, I'm just saying that that we're trying to be sensitive to where people are coming from and where the communities are coming from, you know, this might be too much for those communities to take on so how do we support them how do we provide the the supports for their governance or for their leaders to feel confident that this major initiative isn't going to steamroll their communities and destroy their culture and their way of life that's why it's so important to have this meaningful discussion and 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 this yeah this this collaborative engagement and empathetic discussion where you know we understand where they're coming from so that we can bring that into our work
1: And so, Steve, I just want to tie it back a little bit to this idea of truth and conciliation or truth and and reciprocity and what folks can do in their everyday life to contribute to calls to action and and shifting things in a positive way. I know how you can contribute um, as an engineer. You've talked a little bit about that and how you are living and breathing some of these ideas into your company. But as a, a general public person or advice you would give your kids or your Neighbors, what are your thoughts around what folks can do to help with the calls to
0: action? So, in Canada, we have two histories. There's the non Indigenous history of Canada, which starts back in, you know, when countries confederated and maybe slightly before that, right? And that's where you hear what a lot of people say, like, you know, my family homestead has been here for a hundred and so many years. I'm generalizing a bit here, I don't mean to, but it's sort of our narrative that we have as a country is this one history. And then there's the Indigenous history of Canada, which goes back 10,000 years, you know, in our Blackfoot stories have um, this amazing uh, way of telling the tale of these many, many years going back. So far, it's amazing to hear. It's a long story that we have that we transfer down from generation to generation. You know, we need to bring those two histories together. That's, I think, where we're going with reconciliation and with these calls to action. When you talk about education, even with sports, you know, I, I just love some of these these calls to action around sports and where we can come together and and create a sense of unity, you know, or, or community or that we have this shared interest. You know, it's it's funny that, you know, hockey's our national sport, but it can be the scene of so much violence between our communities. It's It's often, you know, very frightening. But I feel like we would all be better served if we got on the same wavelength, if we spoke the same language and referenced the same things. You're seeing when those two histories collide, there might be an awakening or there might be a conflict. You know, you're seeing these these statues come down. You're seeing the history books being opened up and being explored and plumbed in the depths of of our country being kind of measured you know i would say that as like a a person that's very hopeful and positive we would all benefit by that merging of the histories of having a common story as a country and and as people just trying to be positive and be the positive actors we want to be so you know it's it's a it's a it's a simple thing to say but it's extremely difficult because it challenges your stereotypes it brings This idea of understanding and listening and challenging your own story as a Canadian or as a, even as an Indigenous person, right? You can be challenged. And so, um, you know, i just like to say that if you're doing that, if you're going through this experience, you're not alone. Uh, I certainly support you and support anybody who's going through this effort. You know, initiatives like this podcast, I think are amazingly helpful. And if it only helps one person, that's enough right? And we need to do this again and again and again. And maybe we'll next time will be two people and then five people. And we'll, we'll have this moment in the future where more often than not, we're speaking about the same country. We're speaking about the same history. And I think that's maybe a far-flung future where reconciliation has come to realize its potential. But I think it's closer than we think. I'm so grateful for you both to be putting in the work, you know, this power of narrative and telling these stories that's going to get us to that future where we're speaking about the same history, we're sharing the same country, and there's no longer this split history of Canada where we're, we're able to kind of navigate the future together.
2: I think we always forget how close things can be because we have the, because we work on things so gradually. Like I've always been, until you actually said those words, uh, I was always thinking of this as, yeah, I think I even used the term early on, you know, after I'm long gone, maybe something will happen. Well, maybe that's the wrong attitude because things, the way history works, in my non-academic understanding of history, <laughs> there are long periods of hardly anything that we see really happening, and then boom, change comes. You know, the like look what happened with with the breakup of the USSR for example is a good example of that really things were happening over a long period of time but when the change started to happen it was really rapid so maybe there are as you say maybe it is closer than we we sometimes feel it is
1: I think it is too because you see little sparks trying to light like we see the the indigenous people trying to unify but they're just still trying to work out their vision and 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 what it is when the country pauses that they want to say and how to get from here to there. And there's folks on the settler side and the governments saying, we want to do something. We want to do something. We just don't know what to do. Like, just tell us what to do and we'll do it. And and there's people just, I think um, the kindling is coming. People are coming. People are interested. They want to hear the conversations. They just need some safe places to bounce around ideas and, and make sure they get their context right and the words right. Um, and then the conversations will start happening. I think we are closer than you think.
0: You speak to it very well where we are. I think we are that close where it's, you know, it doesn't serve us to be negative or, or kind of lying in the past. I think the, the positive future is where I hope to spend more of my time and my thought. And uh, I, I, I have to because to to you know even the the small um, challenges i've had in my life um, being indigenous or being non-indigenous uh, when it comes to working in our communities or being accepted in my community and that's never been an issue uh, but having parents coming from different worlds has has given me a, a lot of texture to my life and i think i hope to share it and i hope other people can can make meaning of it and take it and and say, you know, that's something that I think is going to help, help me and understand this situation. You know, it's just one person at a time. That's all we can do.
1: It is. And I know um, for my kids, um, and as well as your kids, Steve, that likely they're the ones who are already asking questions. Like I know my, my daughter stood up in our class one day, uh, I forget what they were talking about in social studies, but she says, what about the Métis people? What would they think in this situation? We haven't chatted about them. And she's challenging already in, in her social studies classes in junior high, right? And I'm sure your kids are the same. And I know one of the things that when people ask me, well, what can I do today? What can I do today? I say, start the conversation at your kitchen table. Talk with your family and talk with your friends and and just start talking about it. Just bring it up. Yeah. and then uh, And then you don't know... Where you're going to head, but at least you're creating those safe and comfortable places where we can chat about those things.
2: Steve, thank you so much for this. It is it has been just a, a really fruitful conversation, and I hope it ripples through our listeners as we move forward. And it's been fascinating. I know that it's really uh, it's really helped me understand more about the the many issues we face as a nation. And it hasn't bogged me down. It's given me hope. So so thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Steve.
0: Thanks, George. Thanks, Jessica.
2: Unsettled. Journeys in Truth and Conciliation is a production of Features West Studios in Edmonton, Alberta. Co-hosts, Jessica Vandenberg and me, George Lee. Music written and performed by Kevin John, a member of the Cayucat Checklist First Nation on Vancouver Island. Logo conceived and designed by Corrine Riedel and Sandy Brown Van Dam. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google and other major platforms. Remember to visit and like our Facebook page. Many thanks to our guest, Stephen Vavada. Be good to each other, stay healthy, and air quotes alert. See you next time.